All right, page, page 9 and 10 in your Bibles, open it up. We're in a series that's all about the mission of God. This is part three. Can I just do a quick recap for those who haven't been here? By the way, it's really cool to see the whole Shapley row over here. Uh, they, they've got new daughter-in-law. They've got son back from Denver. It's, that's really neat. I've, I've got to meet some other new first-timers, um, uh, students, refugees, just friends. It's, it's really neat to see some family. Um, what we've been talking about is the mission of God, and the mission of God really begins in, this, in the story of God. What I'm trying to say is that the story of God reveals the mission of God. So our way of teaching this story, our, our way of teaching the mission is to teach the story. We're going to start at the beginning and kind of work our way through, and we're not going to take years to do this. We're just going to do it in a couple of months. And so our pace is pretty fast, but it, it's this idea that in order to really understand what salvation looks like, in order to understand evangelism, we actually need to understand the whole story of what's happening in Scripture, who we are as God's people. The story of God reveals the mission of God. And the first chapter of the story is Genesis 1, where God creates, and He creates humanity in His image. You remember, images doesn't mean that you have a soul, or, and it doesn't mean that you have free will. Image in the ancient world was a way of saying that you were a king and a priest who represents the gods. So we are here as God's kings and priests, and the mission is that he commissions us on is to fill, fill the earth with his blessing. Everything we do as humans is, is part of this task of filling the earth with God's blessing. Of course, it doesn't go great. Chapter 2 of the story, chapter 2 we called curse. And the curse is the fallout of human sin. You remember we talked about Chernobyl and some of the radioactive fallout and how sin operates like that. Sin is both the choice and the lingering effects of something. And it gets complicated at every level. It starts complicating who we are in our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to other people. And then all the systems of the world get kind of turned upside down. You remember all of this from last week? Uh, it's sort of a depressing sermon. I think it's really helpful for understanding the problem. And what we said was that the problems in the story, the problems in the story focus the promises of God. And so if God is going to actually bring salvation and blessing to the problem of the curse, you have to understand the curse. Um, we've got, you know, YouTube and podcasts. So if, if you miss some of these, just go back and check it out. But this week, we're taking a step forward in the story, and we're introducing chapter three today, the calling, the calling. And the, the, the claim is this, that God calls the broken family of Abraham to carry his blessing to all the earth. So here's the logic that he, he asked all of humanity as his images, male and female were all his images. He says, everybody is supposed to fill the earth with his blessing. Rule, have dominion, be fruitful, multiply. But then it all goes wrong, right? And so then he continues to focus and to select. Uh, there's a big theological word here called election. He elects someone to represent the rest of the group. That's what we're going to dive into today. But it's kind of weird, right? Because if we're talking about the mission of God, why are we talking about Abraham? Why, most of us, if we were to share the gospel, we would never come up with Abraham. It would be a long time before we actually got to Abraham. And yet, in the storyline of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says this is the first time the gospel is preached. Now, you could find gospel hints in creation and in the fall. But the first time, Paul says that the Lord preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a gospel text that we're going to look at today. It's the gospel according to Abraham in some sense. And so we're trying to recover this part of the story because I think this part of the story can help reveal some of our mission as children of Abraham. All right, let's dive into our text. Um, we'll come back to some tensions that we may be feeling about this, but we had a really cool time of blessing kids, but it means we have a little less time for teaching. So um, I'm not, not too worried about that, but let's just move into this. So if the claim is that God, he calls the broken family of Abraham to carry his blessing to all, to all the earth, what is this broken family that I'm talking about? I'm going to introduce you to the family of Abraham. The family of Abraham shows up in Genesis chapter 11. And it says, basically, this is the family line of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram. That's our guy. His name's about to become Abraham in a couple of chapters. So this is his family history, okay? Nahor and Haran are his brothers, and Haran became the father of Lot. 
while his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. We meet Abram in the context of a story that's already filled with death. He is not exempt from the curse of death. His family has very much experienced the curse of death. Have you ever heard somebody say that it's not right for a father to bury his son? That, this is all signaling he lives in that world that we live in. He's not exempt. He's not exempt from, this is Abram's family. And Abram and Nahor, they were both married. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Her name's going to become Sarah in just a couple of chapters. So we'll talk about Abraham and Sarah today. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they sent out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. You see, there's death, there's infertility and barrenness, and there's this feeling of a placelessness. We're not really sure where we need to be. Let's, let's try it over there. And then they start on their way, and then they don't even get to where they want to go, and then they just stop. This is how we're introduced to the family of Abraham. And then it says, this is the end of chapter 11, Terah lived 205 years, and then he died in Haran. You see the focal points, the language that kind of fills in the names. Death and barrenness and childlessness and moving. There's a lot of hard stuff in this family of Abraham. The, the frame for thinking about the mission, we've used the language of our values here at Oikos Church. It's a spirit-led movement, renewed identity, beloved family, holistic ministry. And we talked about how sin and the curse of death, it turns all of those and twists them all. Last week we focused on this. But if you just use that same grid to look at Abraham and his family, we see that he's not doing great. <laughs> he's fully in this curse of death. We talked about the broken family, but in the sense that he's spirit-led, it's like we see a lot of movement in the family of Abraham, but there's no spirit that's leading them. Somebody feels a pressure point, and it's not that God asked them to do something. They just try it. <laughs> they're, they're not being led by the Spirit. They're just kind of aimless. They're kind of wandering. They're searching for something, but not, they're not looking to God. And in fact, in, in the book of Joshua, which is much later in the story, Joshua, he stands up and he preaches the sermon, and he reminds his people, he says, Terah, that's Abraham's dad, and his family, they were idolaters in the land of the Babylonians. They're not spirit-led. These are idol-worshiping pagan people who are just trying to figure out life in the world of the curse. How about the, the next part of our values, the renewed identity? How is the identity of Abraham in this section? It's not great. In the ancient world, you probably know this, it's a little different than modern identity. Traditional identity is found in things like your family, your children, your legacy before and after you. And if that's the measure of a man, if that's the measure of a name, Abram is introduced as a joke. Literally, it's going to become a joke. People are going to start laughing at Abram and Sarah. Abram is a name that means exalted father. We might call him Big Daddy or something like that. But Big Daddy has no kids. It's, it's a joke. This guy, he's got no name. He's got no country, no land. He's in between places. He came from Babylon, and he's supposed to be in Canaan, and here he is in Haran. What's he doing there? And then if you look around at his other family legacy, he's got his brothers, his dead brother's son kind of lingering, and he's got his, his father who died. In identity? In a traditional culture, all of this is saying that his identity is extremely insecure. He, he doesn't have anything to point to that says this is a man who is worth something and has value the, the markers of identity. What about his, his beloved family? His beloved family. Now, the family line is really important in, in the story. Do you remember? He tells Eve, the Lord tells Eve, that your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. Your, your child, and she, she has a child, and it's Abel. That didn't work out great. Her seed murders her son. 
And then maybe, maybe it's Noah. Maybe here's the one who will bring rest and peace. The narrative has us hoping, but it's not him either. And so who will it be that actually brings the blessing, the rest that the Lord is hoping, that the world is hoping for? It's not this guy. This guy is just death and barrenness. Those are the words that are highlighted. Those are the words that are repeated in the sequence. Do you see beloved family? No, this guy, he comes from a broken family. We talked about holistic ministry in the, in the sense that God wants to bless the whole earth, the land. This guy doesn't even have land. Holistic ministry, he wants to be a blessing. Blessing in Genesis 1 is about the capacity to give life. Does Abraham have the capacity to give life? It doesn't seem like it. He has no kids. There's just death all around him. You see how this is really momentous. We're in this story that's all about the complications of sin and the curse of death. And it's, it's big and it's a wide problem. And God's going to select someone to carry on the blessing. And this is the guy he chooses. It's, it's so startling to me. It's so striking. But it actually really resonates with me. Uh, my family's really broken. I was talking to my, my dad just yesterday. You know, just ca casual conversation. Literally, he's telling me, like, the direction of the smoke on the fire. He's, like, it was, it was just a catch-up. Weather. Then he says, the people around me, they vacation with their kids. They seem to be connected. He says, but I am not even able to talk to two of them. My family's broken. I'm, I'm broken. I, I feel this. Sometimes when I, like last week, reflect on the, the scope of the curse of sin and death and how big the problems are in our world. And then when I start to really try to help, it, it feels like I'm, I'm just not going to actually help anything. And this is like an admission. Oftentimes I feel hopeless about the mission of God in the world. Now, I know that's not true, but that's what it feels like sometimes, that it feels hopeless because of the scope of the problem and how I'm wrapped up in those problems. Does that make, make sense? And it's not just that my family's wrapped up in those problems. It's that I see myself perpetuating some of those same things. That I'm also hypercritical and judgmental. That I'm also struggling to have a relationship with my own family. That, you know, if it's going to, if the blessing is dependent on someone like me, then we're in bad shape, guys. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it feels like. Maybe, maybe that's what it feels like to some of you. Some of you are nodding, maybe because you know my family, maybe because you have a family too. Uh, maybe because you've tried to help with some serious problems and you realize that the problems don't go away easily, that the problems seem to be interconnected and they seem to be really enduring. And it can feel like, what is God going to do with the people like us? And I, th I think this is what we're supposed to feel at the end of Genesis 11. But God does something right at the beginning of 12 that is momentous. Um, Gerhard von Rad, he's an Old Testament commentator. He says this is one of the most momentous moments in the whole story of Scripture. Everything is all the promises, all the mission of God, his blessing to reverse the curse. It's all building up, building up, building up. And it's barrenness and death and it's Abraham and his family. And yet, look what happens next. It's the call of God. If you're taking notes, this is like the next point, okay? When you see big bold, that's a cue. You're welcome, Chase. Yes. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram. I love this. It's, it's an important moment when the Lord speaks. Now, we may think that Abraham often had conversations with God, but it seems like in the narrative, the ones that we get, it happens about every 25 years. There, there's lots of seeking and there's lots of silence. And even in the narrative so far, God was speaking forth creation. Remember, he, he spoke and let there be and then there was. And let there be and then there was. And he, he goes through all of creation and he's speaking to Adam and Eve. But then there's this period of a lot of silence that's interrupted occasionally. But here God is going to do something. He speaks to Abram. And what does he say? He says, Go. 
go. And literally, get yourself out of here. I was reading John Golden Gay. He says there's a lot of ways that you can invite someone. There's polite ways that you can invite somebody. He says God does none of those. <laughs> he summons. He commands. He directs. He tells Abram, get yourself out of there. Get yourself out of your country and your people and your father's household. Do you remember those identity markers <laughs> in, in the ancient world, right? You look to your kids and you look to your father. You look to the big household. You look to your land. You look to what you own. You look to your fields and flocks. And he says, I want you to leave all of it. This is so weird that he would have them leave everything. And then he says, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Notice he doesn't say, I want you to go to the land, this one, the one that I'm telling you about right now. He's like, no, I'll show you in the future. It's, it's a step into a big question mark. I don't even know where we're going. But he's calling me to leave. That's where the call of God starts. This call is so demanding. It's, it's this personal call that requires him to give up basically everything. And it's a call that his dad can't answer for him, that his wife can't answer for him. It's a call that his brothers and his relatives cannot answer for him. In a culture where it's a collectivist culture, he calls a man. And he says, I want you to listen to me. And whether or not he does it depends on, on a personal response. But the, the personal call is also sacrificial. I want you to leave it. I want you to go. Any source of not only identity, but also security, I want you to walk away from it. Now, I think this is pretty striking. It's almost like it's almost like God, he chooses the man who has nothing to offer and then is like, I, I want to make sure that you're on the same page as me. You are not bringing anything to this. Everything is dependent on me, but it, it's incredibly demanding. I want you to step away from everything. In a lot of ways, this call very much resonates with the call of Jesus. Whenever Jesus introduces himself to people who would be his disciples, he says, come follow me. Get yourself out of there. I want you to deny, deny yourself. Take up your cross and, and follow me. You see, it's like this whole sacrifice and surrender to where God is wanting to lead him. It's, it's sacrificial. It's, it's very personal. But it's also pretty relational. He's going to have a mission here. Do you see how demanding this, this is? It's, it's an incredibly demanding ask. I'm not even going to tell you where we're going. Just go. Trust me. Trust me. At the same time, this call of God is demanding. It's also incredibly gracious. Look at this. I want you to go, and then look what he says over and over. You see the highlighted words? I, I want you to leave and just give it up, and then I will. I will. I will. I, five times, I will show you. I will make you. I will make your name great. I will bless you, and I will curse them. This it does require a surrender, but then all, because of the surrender, all of the burden is actually put on God. So the call is both demanding and, and gracious. You, you see it here in the great name, great nation. I want to make you into a great nation, but I want you to give up your nation first. I, I want you to give up your land first. I want you to give up everything that you might associate with your name first, and then I will give it to you. It's, it's both gracious and demanding. There, a couple of really neat ways to talk about this. One of them, I love John Calvin's little paraphrase here. Um, if I can find it. He says, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes and forbid thee to inquire where am I am about to lead you until having renounced your country, then you, shall have, then you shall have given thyself wholly to me. He says, I want you to give up everything and then I will take care of it. I will, I will, I will. What we see here is that Abram... He's not blessed because he deserves it. In fact, he seems to be selected because he brings no qualifications to the table himself. It seems to me that he's chosen because of his lack of qualities and because of the brokenness of his family. And then God is going to do something spectacular and gracious. 
He, he takes a man with no nation. He says, I'm going to give you a great nation. He takes a man with no name. I'm going to give you a great name. He takes a man living in the curse and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. It's gracious. Third, I see that the call of God here is missional. The word missio in Latin just means it's sent. You're, you're sent somewhere. And Abraham is sent to be a blessing. I'm, I'm going to do this for you so that I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And then all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the blessing continues. Remember, blessing is about life and flourishing. It's about peace and rest. And everybody has only experienced curse so far. It's the curse of death and it's the curse of sin. But he says the problems, the problems are there, but the mission continues. The blessing is still here. And you are now the vehicle for the blessing of other people. This, this guy who didn't have anything, God's going to make him into something, and he's going to make him into something so that he can be a blessing. Uh, one commentator, Chris Wright, he writes a lot on the mission of God. He says, we're a so that people. We're so that we receive this blessing and the mission. We receive God's his goodness and his faithfulness and his love so that we are, in every case, we are blessed to be a blessing. If you have experienced blessing, it is in order to share, the, to be a vehicle, to be an ambassador of his blessing. This is this call uniquely given here. It was given to all humanity, but now this family is entrusted in a special way with this burden to bless. It's a burden to bless. But it's also, you, last piece on this, you see that it's universal. He wants to bless all nations. Now, in Genesis 10 and 11, it's a weird genealogy. It's called the table of nations. And there's 70 of them. 70 is not literally how many there were. It says there were others. But 70 is this representative number that says all nations will be blessed through this one. At the very beginning of the story of God, he has in mind a multi-ethnic family of all. It uses this language in Genesis 10 and 11 all nations and tribes and languages. And this is the very language that the book of Revelation picks up in Revelation 7. And it says that all of this is now happening in this, the nation that is being formed out of the family of Abraham so that every tongue and tribe and, and nation is gathered into the people of God. This is not some add-on later on. It's not an appendix in the story that's like, wow, that's surprising. No, it's right here in the first great commission of the storyline of Scripture, the universal scope of the call of God. This is what he wanted all along. He wants to bless not only all nations. He wants to bless, it's, it calls it the land. I'm going to give you the creation itself is going to be within the scope of the blessing. The, the families and the way that they relate to one another, the, the people and the, the identity that they're struggling with, all of that, do you, do you see how all those values that we introduced that he didn't have, he's now being called to be led by the Spirit into a movement. He's been given a name and an identity. His, his family is, is taking, I'm going to bless you with families for all, all the earth. And the, and the ministry becomes holistic. It's, it's about creation. It's about people. It's about you. All of it is taking shape in this great commission. But it seems to me that there's a major problem here. Because this guy is just as broken as you and I feel. How is, it, how is he going to be the vehicle of blessing? Because it's great. He's not bringing anything to the... He's not chosen because he's so great. He's chosen in spite of it. Which means that the blessing depends not on him but on God. And so what we'll see is that this guy actually introduces just as many curses into the world as he does blessings. Let's keep walking through Genesis 12, okay? I'm calling this section the Compromise Covenant, and we're just going to pick it up in verse 10, okay? And what we see is just story after story of the faithlessness of Abram. Now, he, he does. He takes the step, and he leaves his father and his, his nation and his land, and it says he left as the Lord told him, but then it says, and Lot went with him. There's some ambiguity here, but you remember he was supposed to leave all of his father's entire household. His father's household includes his brother and his nephew, and yet here he is. And just for clarity's sake, because Lot shows up here, the stories of Sodom keep coming in where Lot settles. 
And later on in the story, this is where Lot's descendants are called the Ammonites and the Moabites. They're like mortal enemies of the family of Abraham. It's not great that he decided to just go and bring a little security blanket with him. Perhaps he realized he was an old man, his wife's barren. Who else is going to be my child? Maybe I'll adopt my nephew. Maybe that's what he's thinking. But already, immediately, he starts compromising God's covenant. But it says, go on, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there. Abram, you just got to Canaan. You were just called out of Babylon into Canaan, and God says, I'm going to bless you and give you the land. This land is for your offspring. And then the first thing he does when he gets to the land is like, hmm, I don't see a lot of food here. See ya. It's like, don't you trust that God can actually give blessing and abundance even in this place? He leaves Canaan, goes to Egypt for a while because the famine was severe. And it says, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Man, that's a great compliment. And then it goes downhill from here. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, that's his wife. And then they will kill me and let you live. So say you're my sister so that I will be treated well. Husbands, I don't recommend any of this. I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He's, can you do me a solid? I'm going to give you to an Egyptian pharaoh and you just go with it. You don't want to, but think of me. Think of how good this will be for me. It's like, Abram, what are you doing? But it's worse than that because Abram, it says he came to Egypt and the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. The see something beautiful and take it is all just riffing on Eve who saw something good and then took it. And he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, and maidservants. An Egyptian maidservant. Where's this going to go? Okay. <laughs> and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases, literally the plagues. He sent the plagues on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And he basically repeats the command of the Lord. Get yourself out of here. <laughs> Can you go back to Canaan? Guys, this is really weird on a lot of levels, right? Giving away your wife is unusual. Lying is also probably not good in this situation. But I think most striking is when he says, I took her to be my wife. Do you remember, the whole story turns on Abram having a child. And he just gave away his wife to another man. And can I say it like this? It's a good thing she was barren because that wouldn't have been his kid. Now, the, the striking thing is that he does this again, all of it, with another man, where he does the lie, you're my sister, and gives his wife to another man. The whole promise of the blessing for the nations depends on him having a child through Sarah, and he keeps giving his wife away to other men. Like, this is so messed up. He, he has moments of faith, but mostly he's initially characterized by faithlessness. It, it doesn't stop. It just gets worse. I, I mentioned the Egyptian maidservant. Her name is Hagar. In Hebrew, Hagar means the immigrant. And so the immigrant is living with him, and Sarai, his wife, says, you know, I'm not able to have kids. We're really old. Why don't you take the immigrant and go sleep with her? And then her child can be our child. And so there's this sexual exploitation of a servant that everybody just is on board with, both of them, the, the husband and the wife. He gives his wife away to other men. The wife gives him away to other women. And he has a child by the immigrant. And you remember the birth of Ishmael? And then Sarah gets mad. She feels lesser because now she didn't have children. And the immigrant looks better than her because now she has a child. And so she says, you've got to get her out of here. And they send him to the desert to die. But in the desert, 
the Lord shows up in a special way to, she's actually still pregnant, to the immigrant out in the wilderness. And she shows up and then she says, she discovers the Lord. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. But then, just like he does it twice, now he's going to do this twice. Eventually, you remember, he'll have a child by Sarah. Um, and then, whenever Isaac, his child, is old enough to wean, Sarah's upset again because the immigrant and her son are still hanging around. And she says, I want you to get rid of them. And so he does. He sends them off into the wilderness to have no water and no food. And Hagar, she goes out. And it says that they were so thirsty, they don't have anything. So she leaves them and goes 100 yards away. She says, I don't want to have to see my boy die. And then in those moments... The Lord shows up and speaks. But over and over, we see, do you see the faithlessness of Abraham? It's just, it's wild how, how central these stories are to the commissioning and the call of Abraham. These aren't like hidden. These are the stories. It's just story after story of faithlessness. And yet, in the face of those, it's story after story of the faithfulness of God. So Hagar goes out into the wilderness and she says, oh. I have met the Lord, and he is the God who sees me. Do you know that God, he sees people when they're alone. He sees people in the wilderness. He sees the immigrant. Even when nobody else sees them, he sees them. He, he sees Sarai and Sarah, too, in all her faults. And he sa- she says, you are the God who gives me laughter. But mostly, can I focus in on, I know I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground, 10 chapters of Genesis in just a couple of minutes. But in Genesis 22, it's really kind of the bookend where he has his son Isaac and he, he has this offer to Isaac in Genesis 22. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Um, New Testament readers, do you recognize any of this? Okay. Take your son, the one and only son, the beloved son, and he says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Put him on the altar, go up the mountain. And so Isaac, he puts the wood on the altar, they gather it, they build it. And then he says, Dad, uh, you got the wood? Everything looks good here? Um, everything, everything all set? Where, where's, the, where's the offering? Where's the animal? We didn't come with any animals. And Abraham says this, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And then he puts his son, Isaac, on the altar. And do you remember this story? The Lord, he tests Abraham actually as a way of growing his faith. To turn him in from a faithless person into a faithful person. And he tests him. And in the moment of testing, Abram becomes this man who he actually surrenders the most important thing in his life. He surrenders it to God. And, and so God, he does. He, he does what he always does. He shows himself faithful. And here, of course, we see this thread line that points to the person of Jesus. Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of Matthew, the first language, first verse of the New Testament. It says, this is the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. But then what most people don't realize is that at the end of Matthew, there's the Great Commission, where he, he all authority, he's on the mountain, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. He's quoting Abraham's commission here. Go, all nations. Jesus is fulfilling the this, this story of Abraham somehow in himself. And he does it primarily through this scene, where the one and only beloved son of God actually takes the place of Abraham's child and every person in his family lineage. Where Jesus, the Messiah, He's presented as on this same hill where Abraham was offering Isaac. On this same hill, he puts wood on his back and he goes up the hill, except there's no substitution made for this man. He is put on the altar of the cross and he becomes the curse to rescue us. We'll talk much more about this in, uh, in a future sermon in this series. where We're going to dive into Galatians 3, but what Paul says is that he rescued us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Jesus, the true son of Abraham, pr- ultimately proves the faithfulness of God. 
that if you're wondering how is God going to do it through a guy like this, through a family like this, through a person like me, the answer ultimately is only through the Messiah Jesus who becomes the substitute, who then pours out his blessing to empower people for his mission. Okay, I just covered a lot. Are you with me? We've talked about this broken family of Abraham is entrusted with the the call of God to fill the earth with his blessing. Still, these people with all their problems. So what might that mean for us if Jesus the Messiah has become the true son of Abraham and has rescued us here? What might that mean for me and you? Can we explore that? The first thing that we just have to be really clear about is that we, in Christ, are children of Abraham. In Galatians 3, he says, if you put on Christ in baptism, it's like you've put on clothing. And when you put on those clothes, you're adopted into the family. He says, you become heirs in the family of Abraham. So the the believers, the people in Christ are in Abraham, which means that you are heirs of the promise. You're heirs of this great name. You want to know the name that is above every name? Abraham, he couldn't even fathom the name that God was going to give him because he gave him, in his line, the name of Jesus Christ. He gave him the name of King Jesus. And one day, at at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and they will will give glory to God the Father. This name is shared with us. The, The promise of a name, the promise of a nation, the promise of a land, the promise of a people and a family, it's all here for us. We are recipients of the the promise, but that also means that we are heirs of the mission. Because just like Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, election is always for mission. Election is for mission. If he calls you in, he wants to send you out. Heirs of the mission, I want you to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. What an amazing a burden, privilege, gift this is to be, to be a child of Abraham in the family of God. But this is still somewhat theoretical. Can I try to make it practical in a couple of minutes? Um, I'm going to try it here. Mostly, it's like keep coming back. We have, we have five more parts to this series. We're going to keep fleshing out what it means to be part of this, this mission. But let me say this. That if you're an heir of the promise and an heir of the mission, your struggle with sin is not evidence that you are not elect. It's evidence that you're human. The brokenness of your family, the brokenness of your story, is not evidence that you're not elect. They're evidence that you're human. You see, God elects, he chooses, he calls people, the only ones he has to work with are fundamentally flawed and broken and sinful. If, if you feel like you're exempt and that's why the Lord chose you, you have some things really turned upside down. Obedience is the response to God's gracious call. It, it's not the basis for it. We are broken people, and that is why he's choosing us to save us. He wants to give a blessing to us. He can use your story. He can use your family. He can use your gifts. Speaking of gifts, how can you discern where you're gifted in God's mission? This is a really important question, especially that you start answering in college. You get out of high school, you're trying to figure out, all right, what's next? Um, A couple of weeks ago, we had the college students over. Were you all at our house? Where were we? Okay, my house? There's a few people at my house. It's a blur. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And over and over, they were sharing that there's this burden, there's this pressure to really kind of figure out what's next and to figure out what has God wanted me to do with my life. And the, the good news is you only have to figure out today. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But I, I've learned along the way that there's a couple of things that have really helped uh, clarify what God is calling me into. Um, I think in America, we are very good at marketing ourselves and we are less good at discerning where we've been marked. Um, in, in my f- kind of church of upbringing, some of you can, may can relate to this, we're, we're okay with God calling kind of everybody, but we're very uncertain about God calling individuals. And so this means that we haven't thought deeply about this. Um, let me share four criteria, and these aren't on the screen. Just hang with me. Chase, write these down, okay? 
The first criteria about discerning where God is calling you that I use is need. Need. Where's the need? A need, I think, is the most important of the four criteria that I'm going to share. Many, many times you will be called into something that you do not want, but there's a need to do. I was thinking about people that I've seen married um, to a spouse who gets a debilitating illness or um, really it's like an enduring trial. It's like, I don't want this. Whose job is it to take care of, of him or her? <laughs> this is my, it's now my mission in life. Same thing with like a, very much like a special needs child. It's like, I'd, maybe I'd, this isn't exactly what I would have wanted, but because God has placed me here, I can actually see a mission for me. Those are just illustrations to say that very often God will show you a need before you have a desire for it. Second, after need is opportunity. Opportunity, a lot of times you'll see a need, but nobody is saying, why don't you come help? Or here's an open door. Open doors are a major way that the Lord works. I would just urge you, pay attention to open doors. If you see an open door and a closed door, it's probably the Spirit of God working. I, I can't say for sure. Let's talk. But this is a pretty good discernment tool, open and closed doors. The Lord is constantly using these in Scripture. Where is the opportunity? Where have you been invited in? The third, I call it affinity. You, you could just use the word desire. Like, how does it align with you? Um, what do you want? The Christian calling is not to follow your heart. We've talked about this. No, our culture's calling is to follow your heart, but that's not the Christian calling because desire is often the last thing to come around. I was reading this book called Grit by Angela Duckworth, and it's not a Christian book. You know, it's, it's just, it's a book about your passion and how to follow your passion. But what she says is that grit is actually two pieces. It is both discovering a passion and it is the perseverance to follow through. It's the perseverance through the times when you don't actually want it. The only way to actually get on the other side is to push through. She says our potential is one thing. What we do with it is quite another. As much as talent counts, effort counts twice as much. So she, has, she says enthusiasm is common, but endurance is rare. So this, this affinity may not be there and may not stay there. But very often the Lord is calling you to push through a season where you don't actually want something. Um, and college students, grad school, perhaps on the horizon, sometimes that's exactly what that season is. He uses those seasons of difficult things that you don't really want to prepare you and to grow your desire in a, in a more durable way for the thing that he's got in store for you in the future. The same thing is true in like struggles in a marriage. When, when you no longer want to be married, when you... I was talking with a, an older man, a mentor of mine. He says there were a couple of years in his life. Uh, he, for him, divorce wasn't an option. And so he said, one of us has got to die. He, and it was like, I'm not going to kill her. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but he, he's like, that's the only way that we're going to get relief. The only way that feels like I can get out of this. He, divorce wasn't an option. I... I totally appreciate it. We'll talk more about marriage and divorce in another series. But for him, he just wanted a way out. But what research actually shows is in marriage that are really hard, if you just stay, even in the season that's really hard, the vast majority of marriages actually come around to more joy and fulfillment later on, if you just stick in it. The same thing is there in college. Same thing, you know, very often he doesn't use our affinities. He uses kind of despite those difficult things. All right, last one. Need, opportunity, affinity, ability. Ability, your gifts, your talents, um, the unique things that he's given you. Um, this is, I guess your Duck Horse quote too early. She says, without effort, your talent is nothing more than unmet potential. You have to push because it, she says, without effort, your skill is nothing more than what you could have done but didn't. Ability is only going to get you so far. Ability gets you in the door. And so it's not the best criteria for discerning your calling and, and your mission. You want some alignment of these things. But very often he uses us despite our abilities. And he introduces us to things where we feel very ill-equipped. Um, can I share a story about this? 
Um, I was thinking of one of my, my calling to ministry was really clarified. Um, I've been asking myself this week, did I already share this story? I'm just going to share it again. Um, okay. I don't know. You can tell me later, Scott, if I did. Uh, when I was a, a teenager, I wanted to be a basketball coach. Um, I was what my coach called a gym rat. And you're like, for a five foot eleven white guy, it's like, how does that play out? It was like, what, what was the, the end goal of, of you as an athlete? It was a coach, okay? Those who can't do, coach. Um, but I was the guy who like wore basketball shorts under my jeans, because you never know when a basketball game is going to break out. You know, basketball shoes in the truck all the time, got a ball on hand. I loved basketball, and so my follow your heart after all. I wanted to coach basketball. Maybe this is, this is what I have in life. My senior year, um, my, my preacher pulled me aside. I was really involved in my church, and my church was hosting a, like a Bible bowl like a, a Bible trivia type contest, and, and they wanted to do the sermon outline contest. Not a preaching contest, a sermon outline contest. He's like, you're a senior. No, nobody at our church has actually entered this. Can you be a leader and lead by example? I, we want you, and then if you do it, maybe some other guys will follow suit. And so I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll submit a sermon outline. And so I wrote my first sermon outline and submitted it, and a couple of the other guys, they did too, because they heard that I was doing it, and I was like, all right, you got what you wanted, and then I presented that sermon at our little conference in a room with three preachers. It was, it was the most, one of the most awkward, like, preaching moments you'll ever have, where I'm just, like, racing through my outline, trying to read as fast as I can. I'm not, I'm, I have no ability, and I don't even have affinity. Like, I don't desire this. I'm going to go shoot some hoops after this is over, hopefully in the parking lot if there's a goal around. But because somebody invited me in, and then he says, we have a need, I just happened to step into it. Um, the punishment for, my, my outline won that contest, and the punishment for winning the contest was you had to present it in front of the whole conference. I was like, oh, no, you never told me that part. <laughs> and so, you know, I just raced through it, and there was a lot of affirmation, actually. And I just can't imagine what they were affirming because, I'm, I mean, just imagine your first time to ever try something. It's not good. But they didn't tell me that. They actually said that I should stick with it. But at the bottom of that, the feedback that I got from the, the panel of preachers, one of them wrote, the one that was my preacher, he said, you should seriously consider becoming a preacher. I was like, <laughs> I had never even thought about it. I didn't come from a family of preachers. In fact, my family was very resistant to the idea of ministry. If you were to do ministry, you better ha that better be like a, a side thing. Why don't you go get a real job? That was very much what my family, like grandparents, parents, that was what they all said. But I did begin considering it. And so I was very open to the idea. And so I went to Freed Hardeman, and I thought, I'm either going to major in Bible or like kinesiology. And first week I was there, I, I knew one person. He was about five years older. He was in grad school, and he calls me. We're not friends. I just know him. He's from my same hometown, 600 miles away. He says, our preacher didn't come back to school. We need somebody on Sunday. We need. Do you hear the word of need? <laughs> come. So need and opportunity. And I was like, yeah, I've got a sermon. <laughs> I can preach it. And I said, it's on the leadership of Joshua. Is that going to be okay? And he's like, I don't know. They've told us not to ever teach on the Old Testament. And I was like, well, that's the only one I have. So, you know, that, that was probably some red flags, right? But then I show up, and there's, there's six people there at, at the church, and me, so seven. Um, and I preach this Old Testament sermon that they don't want, but the same thing <laughs> happens. It's like the, there was this, they called me back on Monday, and he's like, you know, I was kind of surprised. They actually liked the Old Testament sermon. They would like for you to continue preaching every week. You know, I'm 18 years old. I've, I've got the one done, and I've preached it. I don't have any more. So it's not an ability. It's not an, but what the Lord does in that season is over the next four years, I preach every week at this little church. Um, and he had amazing gifts for me to clarify some of how he wanted me to be used in the church. And... I, I saw very clearly that he wanted me to serve God's people in a local church context. There's lots of other ways to serve God's people. The, 
Preaching is not the only mission of God. But everyone in this room is on a mission from God. On a mission to, in some way, to uniquely carry his blessing into the world. And he's going to use needs and opportunities. And he's sometimes even going to use affinities and abilities. But as one preacher told me, Rick Ashley, he says, if this is a gift, why does it take 25 hours a week to unwrap it? <laughs> you know? It's like, I, I work really hard. And I went to school for four years, only to then go to school for four more years. Most, most people who go to four years of graduate school are called doctors, not me. You know? And they get paid like doctors, not me. And there's this, it's a hard thing that he may be asking you to do. I'm mostly thinking of college students, grad school students. I'm, I'm thinking of people in hard situations, in marriage and family. And don't think that this is a sign that this isn't what the Lord wants you to use to bring a blessing. Often, the Lord wants us in our realm of experience of the curse to, as Kelsey said, in the darkness to shine a light in a unique way. It's when we see the darkness. Okay, that's, that's enough of me. Um, I should just stop. Can, can I just ask you um, to imagine what it would be like to discover the ways that God is calling you to be a blessing? Now, you may not know that today. You may not know that in this season or this next season because you're in a time of transition. You may not know it, but imagine what it would be like to, to have that confidence. The Lord is leading you into that place. He will lead you through the hard thing into a, a season of delight and joy, of fruitfulness and fulfillment, of rest. It's the word in, that we're using, the word blessing. He wants to bless you and fill you up in that hard place so that you can use that to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. How can he bless you to bless others in your family, in your relationships, in your workplace, in your school. How can he bless you this month? All right, would you stand? I'm gonna, I'm gonna just read this scripture almost as a prayer from Hebrews 2 about the true son of Abraham and the, where we get the power to do this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And he's going to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He helps Abraham's descendants. For this reason, Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. Lord Jesus Christ, help us who are weak. We praise your name to the glory of the Father. Amen.